Hello and welcome to another episode of Horror Homeroom Conversations. I'm Elizabeth Irwin. I'm Gwen Hoffman. I'm Dawn Keatley. And on this episode, we're heading back to 1987 with Joseph Rubin's The Stepfather. Inspired by the horrific murders committed by John List, this movie doesn't just deconstruct the myth of the nuclear family, it detonates it and sets it to a slamming 80s soundtrack. We're talking conservative values run amok on this episode, so stay tuned. Okay, y'all, it's been a year. I mean, it's been a year, but it also has literally been a year since we've done this. And we thought that with the political changing of the guard here in the United States, now would be a good time to revisit a film that really sticks it to politicize family values. And as always, here is the IMDb description for the stepfather. After murdering his entire family, a man marries a widow with a teenage daughter in another town and prepares to do it all over again. All right, my dudes, what did you think about The Stepfather, 1987? I think this film holds up really well. This is actually a film that I wrote. It was the first film I I ever wrote about, ever. Um, and I wrote about it in grad school. And it's a perfect movie for grad students, um, I think, especially in the 90s, which is when I was writing about it. So maybe we'll talk about that, la that later. But yeah, I think it holds up well. Um, I got some questions for you about what works and maybe doesn't work. But yeah, it's a good film. I too enjoy the film. I think, I don't know if it holds up quite as well for me as it did when I was younger. So I was probably about 10 when this came out. But when I first watched it, I don't think that I knew some of the loosely based history. So it just read much more like a film now. And then I think now in my riper old age of whatever that might be, after watching a million and one ID episodes and, you know, Netflix, especially during a pandemic, it almost just reads a little bit more like another one of those. I think what I find the most worth in, though, is the, the conservative um, family values, just discussion. So, yeah, the way it's skewered. I mean, the whole film is kind of devoted to destroying that particular ideology kind of in a way, like, I think that's why it resonates now, right? Because one of the more recent slashers was um, Sophia Takal's Black Christmas, which we did a podcast on. And that was a film in which sort of one could say the horror was pretty much in complete service to a political agenda. So that's kind of like where horror is at right now. And that's one reason I think the stepfather, I don't know, it resonates with the political horror of today. But Liz, you didn't say what you, like, what do you think of it? Well, I was really excited to do this film because I had such great memories of it as a kid, watching it and being completely creeped out. And so I was super surprised when I rewatched it this time. I don't want to say it's like a light film, but it has like, if there could be such a thing as like frothy horror, I think this is what it would be. Because it didn't feel like horror to me anymore. It felt like... A lifetime movie and I think it's a potentially interesting conversation to have about what delineates like cinematic horror from something that you would see like on lifetime because I mean both are technically cinematic horror but they have different audiences different agendas and what really struck out or stuck out to me this go around was just the focus on Americana that I obviously completely missed as a kid 
but I don't know. It didn't land for me as much as I was hoping it would land for me. I did go and watch the remake, and I actually thought that did a better job of capturing a little bit of like the horror elements. So I was happy to revisit it, and it's always fun to like consider a movie that you have such a fondness for. But I think there's a real difference between like a nostalgic lens of looking at a movie you grew up with versus experiencing it now. Um, because I would never call this a slasher film at all. So it really shocks me that it's considered one because I was looking at the Wikipedia page, the bastion of all information. And according to its page, it said, quote, the stepfather was initially marketed as a psychological thriller. When audiences did not respond to this as well as New Century would have liked, they marketed it as a slasher film. So I guess maybe a place we could start is where do you all come down on in terms of those definitions? Do you think it is more of like psychological thriller, more horror, maybe an unusual hybrid? It's not a slasher. Um, I'm not sure who would have called it that. It is a horror film though. I mean, come on people, like the isn't the first scene almost of a dead family including a pretty slow pan across a butchered child now i i actually don't watch lifetime movies um i've never watched anything on lifetime but would they show a butchered child see i didn't think it was a graphic depiction of the dead child at all like what i zoomed in on was the teddy bear is sort of like that hit you in the face lost innocence and you get, I think we're not seeing as much as maybe is there. It was interesting because I did notice in the remake, they definitely do zero in on the body of the child. Whereas I felt like the first one you saw, I think it's like an arm and like maybe a, some blood. But it's interesting, like memory, because I don't remember seeing the child. I feel like if the camera had really sort of lingered on the dead bodies, I would see it more as horror. But as a big Lifetime movie watcher and all things lowbrow, pretty much, it felt more like that to me. Yeah, I focused more. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm looking back at my notes from the last couple times I watched it as well as this time. And I think every time I focused, I started out with, like, the same line every time. He's covered in blood. He washes off. He cleans up. He changes his appearance. Oh, and by the way, his family was slaughtered. So I think I, in hindsight, don't even really remember some of the bloody family but it might also speak to the fact of maybe the desensitization that happens more and more now like i mean i think about so right now not only are we in the middle of a pandemic you know where we're at there's been so much snow and you can go on to the internet and you can watch security footage of people shooting their neighbors over a, a parking spot and so maybe current TikTok and social media and and even television is is feeding into that too. I don't know. I was going to try to go and look and see if um see if we do see the bloody child at the beginning. I'm pretty sure we do. But definitely there's and you know, like I do think the butchering of Bondurant is pretty uh graphic um when he bashes his head in. I mean, it, yeah. It, it I, to me it kind of works as a horror film. I was just I was just reading Isabel Pineda's recreational horror because she writes about this film, and she makes a point of saying that we really only mostly see male victims here, uh, and that I wonder if that's one way in which it kind of puts itself 
not in the slasher category or takes itself out of the slasher category. Or you could argue that it's kind of playing with the slasher in that, you know, we see men brutally killed rather than women. But that does sort of upset the expectations that we have for, for the slasher subgenre and maybe even horror generally. And I guess, too, it just depends on your subjectivity because I, I think about what you're saying and I think about how, okay, yeah, you do see the murder of a lot more of the male victims, but it's almost the slow torture of the, the wife and the daughter. And that's much more tense to me. It's it's more long lasting. And then there's that power and control dynamic too that is a little bit more horrific than just the murder, you know? Yeah. It's like a home invasion film, except the home is being invaded from the inside. It is actually effectively being invaded from the outside, obviously in that Jerry kind of goes from family to family. He stalks them. He he lay, he sort of scopes out the territory and moves in. But from that point on, it, it then turns into a kind of invasion from the inside, which I think is, is kind of cool. But yeah, that just sort of goes, Gwen, like you said, to the fact that really what's going on in the film is, um, is the sort of terrorizing of the mother and the daughter and the buildup of dread that that involves. I have a, I have a question though, that kind of goes along these lines. Um, why did the film give away all of the suspense? I mean, I, I don't think I noticed this the first time I watched it, but, but from the first scene, right, we see Jerry, we, we know he's killed the family. We know he, he's kind of adopting a different disguise and moving on to another family. We know what's going to happen to Susan and Stephanie. Um, we even see him get the photograph from the newspaper that's that's going to give Stephanie the clue to his identity, but he takes it and he substitutes it for another one. Um, it's like there's there's no suspense. I mean, that's my big problem with the film. Imagine how it would have been different if we didn't have that first scene and we don't know that Jerry's a killer. Mm -hmm. um, that just seems like a weird choice to me. I wonder, A, if they weren't confident in their storytelling abilities, or if B, too, they were just playing off of the whole entire decade like it seemed like the 80s was just filled with serial killers and if it wasn't serial killers it was your satanic panic but i i think even more so it was just serial killers serial killers i mean even look now you know netflix is inundated with documentaries about serial killers from the 80s yeah so so you think they wanted to set him up as a serial killer from the beginning to kind of flag like, hey, this is a serial killer movie? I wonder, because he's not a traditional family annihilator like maybe a John List would be, because it's not like necessarily family annihilators go from one family to the next family, kill them, to the next family, kill them. To the it's not usually that way. So I'm just wondering if they were taking such a fan fantastical story and then making it fit also what was going on maybe in the time period. I think there's a way to read to the beginning as a way of building suspense because you have that great opening scene of the kid, you know, riding his bike through the streets of like this perfect suburban neighborhood. And then it sort of zooms in on the house. And I think by showing us what is happening inside the house, 
it creates suspense in that we already have it confirmed to us that this danger exists and now this danger is being moved to another location and it's almost like waiting for the next shoe to fall right you're wondering you know he's going to act but maybe the suspense comes in how he's going to act when he's going to act if there will be a difference this time. What do you think it says about family values the way that they set it up though? Because it's not like they're setting it up, you know, like a Peyton place saying, hey, you know, these fantastic suburban homes aren't as fantastic as you think they are. Like they didn't set it up that way because the home itself was fine before him, is better after him. And then you have him specifically that comes in with your kind of conservative family value of the time period. I mean, again, that was the 80s, you know, your Tipper Gore times and so on. And then he comes in and, and disrupts it. Do you think that there's a purpose to that? I think that's effective. And I think the visual aspect of the first part of the film that does start with sort of the perfect suburban tree-lined street and, you know, the nice detached houses, and then we get the, the scene of the bloody interior. I think that could have effectively conveyed the violence that lies behind the facade of family values without telling us, this is the man who did it. This is how he did it. This is what he's going to look like now as he moves on to his next victims. So I just think it would have been a, a more interesting film if they had not given away the, the, the identity of the killer, basically. I do like what they're doing, though, in terms of his appearance, because he starts the movie looking like some dude you would see like in a Folgers commercial, like the Mountain Man kind of motif. Um, he instantly read to me as like a university professor for a lot of reasons. <laughs> like the whole look seemed crafted in that regard. Um, and then he moves into like the three-piece suit businessman look. And I, I sort of liked how it was making a connection that there isn't just one type of man who could be a threat in this type of situation, that appearances truly are deceptive. And in terms of the, the politics of the movie, I guess I struggled with whether or not the ending really was as much of an indictment, I guess, of conservative family values as I would have liked to have seen. There's obviously the big moment at the end where they cut down the little birdhouse that you couldn't get more on the nose if you tried in terms of saying like, this is what it was about. But both of those, well, that child and the woman are left in a position where they are absolutely traumatized. So it's not like a celebratory, we've survived and we're enough, we're our own family unit. It's more ambiguous than that, I think. I wonder if it's more about specific power structures too. Sometimes like when I look at the end, cause I'm like, I'm looking at my notes and it says, you know, there's no final male authority. Um, so is it maybe even less about specific family values or all family roles and more so just about that patriarchal hierarchical kind of older mindset yeah i i think this i mean i think this is a film that sets itself against men to be honest i mean right one of the key lines in the film is when stephanie says to i think the psychiatrist um, I think she says it to him, something like, uh, if it was just me and my mom, everything would be fine. And 
then the film sort of goes on this drive to get rid of all the men, like the doctor. And, and you know, Jerry obviously is, is killed by the daughter and the mother at the end. The, the would-be male rescuer is killed after having spent the whole film tracking down uh, Jerry. I mean, that's an obvious like nod to The Shining, right? Where Halloran arrives at the hotel to save the family and is killed instantly. Like there's no rescuer here. So yeah, it, it, it's it's like it's not even like the well the film is is anti patriarchal family I guess like like Gwen said, it's like mothers and daughters are enough to be a family. We don't need men, any any man. Yeah, it definitely reflects like the cultural anxieties of the time. I, the quotation that kept coming up in my mind as I watched it was um, where Jerry says, um, "It's not a family without children," and. That stuck with me because the ending doesn't really push back on that as much as I would have liked to have seen it. It just pushes back on, do you need to have a father to be a family? The answer, according to the movie, would be no. I don't know, because I'm I'm looking at my quotes, too, and they at some point, I think Stephanie specifically says, um, in his own way, he helped to bring us all together. And nothing is going to split us apart now. So it still kind of uses him to wrap them up as a family. And it's still centering a child being a component of a relationship that is what makes a family. Which in a lot of respects, especially in the 80s, when, you know, there was so much blowback in terms of, you know, women working outside the home and getting more economic power, more political power choosing to have children later, if at all, I, I think that was almost, I don't want to say it was like a reflection of that sensibility per se, but it doesn't push back on it the way it pushes back on the presence of, of a father figure. I don't think. That's, that's actually kind of interesting. I never, or it is interesting. I never thought of it like that. So, so you're saying the film is sort of reproducing the eighties, and through that, the 50s and 60s view that a family needs needs children. I guess I was thinking about it as you were saying it, and, and I was like, is Stephanie really a child? I mean, what, one moment that kind of struck me in the film, and this would not have been in a Lifetime movie either, was when Stephanie gets naked and takes a shower. And, you know, you see full frontal nudity from the back and kind of nudity from the front. And it's almost like at that moment, the film is saying, this is not a child. Like she's, she's a woman, which is weird because earlier she's like riding around on her bike and being like a child. And here there, you know, she gets nude shots in the shower. And they go out of their way to show her with a love interest too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it doesn't get very far, but <laughs> she has one. But it, it was the nakedness more than the boyfriend that, that, that I thought was almost moving her into the realm of woman. So it's like two women who were living together at the end, not a more so than a mother and a child. Maybe I don't know. Well, that's interesting for two reasons. One, I have absolutely no recollection of the shower scene. <laughs> so I don't know that I watch like an edited copy, maybe. I don't know, but that's like news to me. Um, and the second is I think it's really a product of, of its time, right? So discussions about childhood and adolescence, teenage years, 
they are different in the 80s than they are now. I think personally, I'm very gratified to see the conversation move toward if you're under 18, you're a kid. Um, but in the 80s, it really, especially in the films, it was not that cut and dry. And so I think you're probably right. Like, I, I think that was probably maybe more of an intention, even to show, because she does go from riding the bike to having the love interest, maybe about being forced to grow up too soon, which is, was a criticism in the 80s of single parents. That was a lot of the narrative was, oh, well, kids are going to grow up and, you know, too soon they're going to have to start taking care of themselves. And you do see that reflected. That's really a strand, a theme in this film. And it's almost like when the father isn't there or when he's a crazy psycho um, and is thus effectively not there as a patriarchal figure, the, the child does have to grow up too soon and is forced into things like nudity on camera and kissing boyfriends on the porch. Whereas if, if she had a stable family if, and if she had a, a real father, maybe she wouldn't have had to go through that, plus stabbing somebody at the top of the stairs with a knife. Did you watch an edited version? Because there was definitely a significant nudity. I was going to say, maybe you got an authentic 80s version that had like a parental explicit lyric sticker on it or something. <laughs> I must have, because I... There Where was, did you watch it? I mean, I probably, you know, borrowed it from free somewhere on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> So you're not saying. <laughs> I don't remember. Right. I can't recall. Isn't that the... Well, because I'm like fascinated by this because that does actually change like a lot of what I thought about this film. <laughs> so I guess nudity can matter. <laughs> yeah, it does matter in this. I mean, and I, I just thought it was odd because like seconds ago she was a child. Yeah, and there's a shot of her completely naked from behind. And then you see breasts like from the side and from the front. Uh, and this is right before she kill, you know, the final battle and her killing Jerry. I also think there's something really interesting happening, though, like with regard to the genesis of the horror and how that's transmitted to audiences. Because I was trying to think of other horror movies um, where the father murders his family. And the ones that came to mind, at least to my mind, were things like um, Judgment Day, Fatal Vision, American Murder, those type. And all of these are one, made for TV movies, and two, they're based on real life people, right? So I think that's important because it ties these stories to specific people and makes the threat almost seem less likely to invade the homes of others. But when I thought of like theatrical releases, there aren't many that at least I could think of that tend to be either, well, the ones that I thought of, like they're either supernatural, so like, um, Oh, what's the name of it? Am Amityville Horror, right? So that, there's one. Um, you have possession-based where, I don't know if you guys saw the movie Clown, but that's a good example of it. He puts on the suit and then he kills the family. Or it, the motivation is incidental to the killer's real objectives. So like the, um, the clove pitch killer. Yeah, I think that's right. So am I missing like major movies where the dad kills the family? I was just going to say, I don't think you're missing anyone's where he's necessarily killing everybody, but I just pulled up a list and they are all in the vein of The Shining, like some pretty 
not so great dads. And they're all around that same time period. You have Rosemary's Baby, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Hills Have Eyes, The Sentinel, Amneville Horror, The Shining, Stepfather, People Under the Stairs, Frailty. That was a good one. But in The Shining, there is like that possession element to it or possibly, I guess, or it could be madness. I guess it depends how you read it. No, but there, there's definitely a supernatural element to that, and and to to Amityville Horror too. Um, I mean, this one there, it is, it is true. Like this is distinctive in having no supernatural element. I mean, you know what it's like. I know you guys have read this, um, the book on '90s horror by somebody whose name I'm forgetting. He's the one that wrote those big tomes, like those one on every decade. But he wrote he wrote about the interloper in '90s horror. This is, I mean, it's three years before the 90s, but this really seems to fit that genre, which tends not to be supernatural, like the hand that rocks the cradle, single white female. But I guess like where I was sort of getting hung up was you do see the non-supernatural, non-possession in made-for-TV movies. So where's that connection like why would this movie be an outlier in terms of cinematic releases versus and i'm just thinking a lot about made for tv movies because of comprehensive exams <laughs> so i could be caught up on this for no reason that's of interest to anyone other than myself but it does feel like there's something very distinct happening yeah i don't know because i'm even looking i think john list was about 1974 so this is easily a decade later that this is being released. But I'm trying to think if there's anything comparable. Is it your argument that somebody kills their own family and you don't see that? Like in um, theatrical releases, you don't typically get the father killing the entire family unless there's the presence of something else happening, usually otherworldly. Whereas for made-for-TV movies, it it's pretty much a staple, especially about killers. They do tend to, a lot of them are men or women who kill their family. Yeah, like Fatal Vision is a good one. Hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think of even movies from about that decade where the mother kills her family. That I think that's where I'm getting hung up because I don't have the frame of reference for made for TV stuff. <laughs> well, just off the top of my head, it almost seems like it's it's another argument that television is more progressive than than film, uh, because to me, it definitely seems like more of a potential indictment of a society, particularly sort of a patriarchal society, if non-possessed men are depicted killing their families. You know, it's, it's more of a profound threat to the family. So if that's happening on television and not on film, it, to me, it suggests that television is going places where film isn't ready to go yet. See, but I'm wondering, I, I mean, I, cause I'm looking back at, cause I have other films from the eighties in my notes from that time period. It seemed like it was more about men that destabilized period less but you're right less about men that were necessarily killing their families because on my next page i happen to have notes about pet cemetery and whereas he doesn't kill his family he quite does the opposite boy oh boy did he wreak havoc on his family i don't know you might have a, you might have something there the shining does this perfectly but the shining is rooted in a mythology where there is yeah like you know 
Jack, the Jack Nicholson character has his flaws that, that lead to the destruction of his family, but he's also, um, you know, there's a supernatural presence in the hotel and the film walks the line between the two. This is, I, I mean, the only thing I can say is that it is coming out of the 80s, that it is a kind of backlash to 80s patriarchal family values, which in itself is rooted in the 50s because obviously Jerry himself is rooted in the 50s with his references to Mr. Ed, Father Knows Best. I think he mentions Leave it to Beaver at some point maybe, or maybe Stephanie does. So I just, I guess I just think the lack of the supernatural element is just like, this is a response to the 80s. In watching it again, I was, I guess, more taken with the fact that it, it kind of continues pop culture's trend of positioning step parents as the other oh yeah and i never would have thought yeah, about that's that. relentless it is relentless the more like when i sat down and thought about it i'm like wow that's pretty much in every like different type of, of narrative why do you think it would still be framed as as an other because when you think about it like it should have made conservative thinkers really happy right you have this man entering into the family so there shouldn't be that separation of of otherness on that in that regard it's just it's just about the way that i guess films can sort of brilliantly resonate with both political with all kinds of political agendas i mean yeah the fact that he's the stepfather wait that you said that should have made conservatives happy yeah that the the stepfather is the one that's vilified um, as in we're trying to run the step-parents out, keep the biological family together. Yeah, I mean, just like the presence of Jerry, like entering into the family, um, because now suddenly you have, quote unquote, a complete family, right? You have the father, you have the mother, you have the child. And it's like that perfect nuclear heteronormative depiction of family. Complete, yes. I, I was to say complete, yes, but... At that decade, too, you would have had wor so many worries about um, divorce rates. So it might have appeared a complete, but at the same time, it was somebody that was not part of the natural family, I guess. But he always pretends that he is, which is what I think is interesting. Like, he doesn't talk about him, his stepchildren. He doesn't talk about himself as a stepfather. When he steps into these fantasies or these families, he always imagines himself as the father, right? Even though the film is called The Stepfather, he never thinks of himself that way. But he always, what I thought was interesting was, and, and this is true in the remake too, there comes that one point where he refers to the child as the name of the biological child that he's killed. And so I almost wonder if it's trying to say something about biology versus non-biology of parents who step into roles that are not theirs, quote unquote, biologically. So then you could go back to the original argument that horror is pretty conservative. And then maybe none of this would have happened if the original families hadn't broken up his nor hers, period. Yeah, that's true. Because um, with her family, it was a choice because they got divorced. I was going to say that would make sense since he does go out of his way to, like you had mentioned before, um, make note of things like a father knows best, Mr. Ed. So it's like he's replicating things he's seen or grown up around. It seems a lot of what he's doing is 
replicating a, a, a role. And the fact that because towards the end, like you both had mentioned that he does get confused about his identities and the names of the people he's with. It's it. Yeah, it's very performative. Huh. Go ahead. <laughs> Wait, how do you know? Are you are you assuming that the first woman and child are his biological that like that's his biological child? I was. Yes, I was making that assumption, but they don't actually you're right. They don't say that, though. I just assumed that was, you know, just another. I don't think there's anything real about Jerry. I'd be shocked if he ever had um, a real child. To me, he's. I We don't get any backstory for him. I mean, that was one thing that I was going to ask you about. Like, you're assuming a backstory. You're assuming that was his biological child and her mother or its mother. Um but we don't know. Like, Jerry's a complete mystery. And, you know, he says to Susan at one point, well, she says to him, you never talk about your past. And he says, I didn't even exist until I met you. And it is like Jerry is this mirror image or reflection of the perfect father. And he was never real. I guess I was thinking, because the bro when the brother-in-law comes and is trying to convince the um, the newspaper guy to run a story on Jerry, I'm, I could be wrong about this, but I thought that he talked a little bit about, like, his sister and, like, the family. And so I, I guess my assumption came from I would have thought that he would have mentioned, like, oh, he came into the family. and But I would have to go back and rewatch that to see exactly what he said. I could, yeah, that is an assumption I was making for sure. I mean, I just, to me, that just gets it like the essence of Jerry's character that he is just, I mean, I, I think he was, I think one of the reasons I wrote about this film in the 90s in graduate school was because it was the heyday of Judith Butler and identity is a performance. And Jerry is just like a shiny performance. Like there's, there's nothing real about him. He can just adopt whatever identity he wants, you know, floating from one to the next. Um, it was very 90s uh, in that regard. And, and single white female is kind of the same. I think, too, like the performance element's interesting because one thing that stuck out to me that I have in my notes is about what this film is saying about the role of community. Because you see that there's absolutely no interaction with the neighbors or he kills his family and then he literally leaves the house people are leaving for work nobody's paying attention to what's happening around them there's no like hey bob hey clara you know it's it's just everyone in their own little world and that to me felt definitely something that was like a pushback on the 80s where people were saying oh you know we're losing community people are going into their suburban silos so I think there are some really delicate moments in this film that that do reflect the 80s even more so than the gender politics. I get I keep going back and forth cuz like I'm looking at um what we've said is that it's been interpreted as um a critique of Reaganism or of the time and you know if we do choose to go back to the 50s type mentality this is what we can do but I keep ping-ponging back and forth would are we saying overarchingly that this is a critique or a replication. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's definitely both. Um, I mean, it's a critique of the ideal, right? And maybe that's where, where it is on the surface. 
uh, with Jerry, you know, because he, he's sort of the avatar of kind of 80s family values. The birdhouse represents it. The birdhouse gets cut down, as Liz said, that's like on the nose. But then you guys have, you know, like raised some things that makes me think that it, it also kind of embodies 80s conservatism too. This wouldn't have happened if Stephanie's real father was here. She wouldn't have been forced into this kind of unnatural role if her real father had been there. Uh, Jerry wouldn't have had an opening. It's kind of, yeah, the breakdown of the family and the anonymity of the suburbs gives Jerry the capability to do what he does, right? I'm just thinking that uh, now in hindsight, I'm thinking about the psychiatrist or the psychologist or whatever, too. Like, they... They wouldn't be showing up at the house anymore these days. And I th and, then, and then I started thinking about like Dr. Loomis and stuff too. I'm like, why were all these psychiatrists showing up at people's houses? There's a little transference going on there. I just don't know if that's ever quite been the ethical role. <laughs> I mean, way to go above and beyond, but <laughs> I don't know. I just think it's a good, I, I've been to watch the two, 2009, I think it was, remake, since you say it's good. It just seems to me, like I said at the beginning, an interesting film to kind of revisit. Now we're in a political horror moment. Um, and clearly this film in 1987 was also sort of of that kind of leaning in what it was doing. Are there things that you think would be different if a version of this was going to be made today? Or do you think we're still in the same political narrative? And that everything that was in the 87 movie and the 2009 movie are still just as relevant today. Honestly, I could see this movie being made today. Um, I could, with one exception, the internet would make it very different. You know, like Jerry is able to conceal his identity because no one knows what he looks like. Yet they can't put Jerry together with other men, you know, stories about murderers in the newspaper. I'm not sure how he could get away with it with the internet. Well, in the remake, there is a neighbor next door who says, oh, I was watching like America's Most Wanted, I think it was. And she said, he looks just like Jerry. And then of course, you know, she meets an untimely demise. So you do see like a graduation of like the newspaper clipping at the family or at the barbecue party in the 1987 verse and to, oh, I saw this on TV. So I would think they would just probably keep it something similar someone saying, you know, oh, I saw this story on Netflix and it looks just like, you know, Jerry. I, I think what would really be different is when she writes a way to get a photo from the newspaper agency and she has to wait and check the mailbox every day. But I guess like if she tried to get it through email, you would just put on like Jerry could say, I need to put on a parental control because, you know, all the porn and whatnot on the Internet is not good for my family. I just wonder if 2021 Jerry would have to tone down his like family values rhetoric in order to not appear to be a parody. Like, I wonder, like, I don't think in 1987 Jerry would. Well, yeah, I think he probably did come off as somewhat of a parody. Um, of the perfect father. I just, I'm not sure. I think it would come across as even more of a parody today. Like it might be hard for anyone to take him seriously. I think so. 
So here's the other thing that I didn't realize in hindsight is I didn't realize that it didn't do as well as I thought it did in my brain when it was released. I think it was only in going back when I was like, oh, yeah, they didn't really love it as much as I thought they did back then. Because I remember the film from when I was younger. I mean, I remember seeing it advertised. I remember watching it. But I more than likely did see it on USA Up All Night, which would probably imply it did not do very well. I think you could really almost verbatim lift. You could definitely lift like the ultimate source of like the horror or the the dread in the film and then just plop it down today, which is really disappointing and sad when you think about it. But those conversations are still going on, right? Loss of community, even more so now with the internet, people in their own silos, that's gotten worse. Family dynamics, that's still under fire. What makes a, what constitutes a family? Step parents are still being othered. (laughs) (laughs) Not much has changed, unfortunately. Well, are we going to do this again or are we going to wait a year and then come back? (laughs) To our credit, we tried and then we couldn't record it. Remember? What did we? We did something. It was a really damn good podcast, guys. I swear, too bad you didn't see it. The Lost Podcast. That was on the hunt. Oh, yeah. So that pretty much wraps up what we have to say about the stepfather. If you have any thought, comments, thoughts, or observations, please let us know. Uh, you can follow us on all things Horror Homeroom on social media. Yes, we will be back. And thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.